History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to the 300th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. Yes, indeed, I just said the number 300. I cannot believe it. I still remember producing the very first episode, and to think that four and a half years later, we've hit number 300, just an amazing thing. want to thank all of you for being here with me on this journey and continuing to listen and especially to share the show with people that you think might be interested in it. And here's to another 300. I'm not going anywhere and I've got a lot more haunted locations to share with you. On this episode, we're going to do things a little bit different. When it's number 300, you have to make it kind of special. You notice probably that the title is It's a Haunted Gay Life. As I record this, it's June of 2019, making it Pride Month, and I've never done anything on History Goes Bump that specifically centers around gay pride or the gay life or anything of that nature. But as I would imagine most of you know by now, I do happen to be gay. So it made sense to me to go ahead and use this 300th episode to do something about pride particularly because it is 50 years since the Stonewall Riots. And when I looked into the history there, lo and behold, I found ghosts. And I wondered, how many other places or people that are important in gay history have ghosts associated with them or some kind of haunting? And I found a couple of other things. So for the first half of this episode, we're going to talk about haunted gay pride. Then in the second half, I wanted to make this a very personal show. So Kelly is going to join me and we're going to talk about my top 10 haunted locations of all time. And that's not based on places that I've necessarily just done episodes on. These are actual places that I've been in and had my own experiences. So nobody else is going to have this top 10 list in the world. And it's probably going to have a lot of places you've never heard of before. So you're going to want to stick around for the entire episode. If you've enjoyed History Goes Bump, it's brought a little bit of joy into your life, please consider joining as an executive producer. Or if you want to just give me a one-time donation or tip, something of that nature, you just head over to the website at historygoesbump.com. And in the right-hand column, you can find ways that you can give back to the show. That being said, I want to thank the executive producers. I have been doing the podcast on the same clunky notebook since the beginning And as I've traveled with it and opened and closed it many, many times, it finally gave up the ghost a few weeks ago, and I'm getting ready to travel this weekend to the Haunted America Conference. So I want to thank the executive producers for helping me to purchase a brand new laptop and brand new software that I am using to record this 300th episode. Without you guys, it would not be possible. Now, let's get to welcoming some people into the Spooktacular crew. want to welcome Mary, Beth... Katie with an IE, 
Antoinette, Donna, Mary Beth, Millie with an IE, Cassandra, Janice, Jennifer, Bella, Richter, I love that name, and Sandy, who also happens to be our dog babysitter when we go out of town occasionally. Welcome to all of you. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Karen Sanders. Science has been able to document and explain many weird atmospheric occurrences that have happened throughout the years. But when it comes to the whispers of Yellowstone Lake, they have documented the phenomenon, but never explained it. The first reports of these sounds were collected in 1893 and published in Science Magazine by Edwin Lytton. He had heard the strange noise himself twice, but accounts go back much further than that to the fur trappers and mountain men. For many years after Lytton's article, nobody mentioned the sounds, but reports started again in 1924. Jack Haynes was a photographer, and he was with a group in a boat on Yellowstone Lake early one morning. They all heard this low roar that got louder and rose in pitch and then faded, only to start up again from another direction. It happened a third time, and all of this took place in less than a minute, and then it was silent. People who've heard the whispers say they sound like these weird ethereal aerial sounds that mimic an electric harp, and that they sound as though they are coming up out of the lake, or that the sound is hanging over the lake. They are like a low hum that increases in decibels, and it sounds almost as if the hums pass right over the person who hears them. It then fades away. There have been several causes suggested over the years. Some say it's caused by swarming bees, but the sound is still around in the winter. Others believe it is just the wind blowing through the trees. A man named Ed Henry suggested that the weird sound was created by air currents created by the mountains, and many agree. The sound is always heard when the lake is calm and early in the morning after an unusually cool evening. Whatever it is that causes the whispers, they certainly are odd. And here is a sample shared by the National Park Service. those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift. I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring. It's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history... In the month of June, on the 12th, in 2016, 
Omar Mateen opened fire inside the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and killed 49 people and wounded 53 others. The Pulse nightclub was opened in 2004 by Barbara Poma and Ron Legler as a gay bar nightclub that hosted various themed nights. This particular night happened to be Latin night, so most of the victims were Latino. Mateen was a security guard who'd been to the club a few times. He'd sworn allegiance to the leader of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. In a recent event in which the U.S. killed Abu Wahib, the leader of the militant group Islamic State in Iraq, triggered him. That would not only make this a mass shooting and hate crime, but also a terrorist attack. The attack started around 2 a.m. with Mateen marching into the club carrying a Sig Sauer MCX semi-automatic rifle and a 9mm Glock 17 semi-automatic pistol. An off-duty police officer working as security called in the police immediately. There was an initial engagement, but Mateen barricaded himself inside and created a hostage situation. He claimed to have explosives, which made the police more cautious about bursting in, but in actuality there were no explosives. At the time of the attack, this was the deadliest mass shooting by a single shooter in U.S. history. Today, it is still the deadliest act of violence against the LGBTQ community in U.S. history. The Pulse nightclub is now a memorial site and a museum that's slated to open in 2020. I've been producing History Goes Bump for exactly four and a half years this month in June of 2019. And we've not only hit 300 episodes, but we have almost 4 million downloads. It's just mind boggling to me. I got so excited about my first thousand downloads, I would have never imagined hitting such a big number. For podcasters, big milestone shows usually mean rolling out a big topic. I struggled. What did I want to do? I haven't done Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum yet. How about Skinwalker Ranch? Or perhaps Raynham Hall in England? These places have been done to death, and I really enjoy doing the obscure places. But I wanted this episode to be different. I knew I wanted to share my top haunted locations, and as I said, I'm going to get into that on the second half of the show. But I didn't want to repeat a lot of things from other episodes. I didn't want to make this like a review show. I listened to episode one a few weeks ago and once again cleaned up the audio a little bit and added an intro disclaimer in hopes that people would not just listen to that episode and decide they didn't like HGB, but give it a chance as the production has drastically improved. At least I think so. As I listened, I realized that I changed my mind on a few things. And even more importantly, in the last four and a half years, I've had quite a few of my own experiences that I can't explain. I also got really inspired by a podcast I just binged. The latest season of Uncover by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is titled The Village, and it explores the history of the Toronto gay village and unsolved murders of gay men and transsexuals that have happened there. That trip through history made me think of American gay history and my own. Things have changed so much. And wouldn't you know, as I explored the history, I found some haunts in some very important landmarks. I turned 16 in 1987, which, yes, makes me pretty old for a vast majority of podcast listeners, since I know many are millennials. Well, most teens at that age are concerned with passing their driver's license test. I was realizing what it was exactly that made me seem different than everybody else. And it wasn't just that I wished I lived in the attic of the Adams Family House while they're living downstairs. I was gay. 
It amazes me as I sit back today and see that we live in a culture where people don't even have to claim a gender anymore and can love anybody they want to love. That wasn't the case when I was a teenager, and it certainly wasn't for the decades before I came out to myself. There was a time when a relationship of mixed religious beliefs or races was taboo and even illegal. My how things have changed, and I'm so happy for young people today. There are definitely still places where it isn't accepted and families that will still lay down judgment, but for the most part, we are pretty close to being where we should be. I like to educate on this podcast, so let's take a trip back 50 years to one of the most momentous moments in gay history here in America. There was a time when not only was homosexuality considered a mental illness, it was illegal to practice. Come with me to the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall Inn got its start in 1930 as a speakeasy located on 91 7th Avenue South. Vincent Bonavia was the owner, so it was known as Bonnie's Stonewall Inn and its cover was that it was just a basic tea room serving up light fare and non-alcoholic beverages. It eventually was raided by Prohibition agents, but it continued to operate. When Prohibition was repealed, Benavia decided he wanted to move to a better location. There was a building on Christopher Street that had once been stables back in the mid-19th century. Bonnie's Stonewall Inn moved in there in 1934 and took up two storefronts, 51 and 53 Christopher Street. The bar and restaurant was very successful, until the inside was gutted by a fire in 1964. The place needed somebody new to love it. In walks the Mafia. They were all about making a profit, and they saw a need in New York City for gay bars. So in 1966, three members of the Mafia refurbished the Stonewall Inn and reopened it as a gay bar. that time, it was the biggest gay establishment in the U.S. This not only made it popular with the gay community, but it put a big target on it for the police. It was customary for the New York Police Department to raid bathhouses and gay bars. Every establishment got hit at least once a month. The ludicrous rules in place at the time were that it was illegal for same-sex people to dance close to each other. It was illegal to serve gay people alcohol, and customers had to wear clothing specific to their genders. You might think, well, okay, how did they enforce this clothing specific to their genders rule? I mean, how did they make sure that that was specific? Because, I mean, jeans, hello, are jeans or jeans, right? A woman needed to wear three pieces of feminine clothing. I don't know exactly how they documented that or how they define that, but I have a feeling it had something to do with things that I refuse to wear, which are dresses and skirts, just not my thing. So I probably would have been arrested many times in one of these bars. And let me just pause right here to tell you the importance of gay bars in the gay community. Nowadays, like for many people, it's easy to find dates on the internet because you can join dating sites and various things like that. But Back in the day, especially like when I was a young person and back here in the 70s, bars were really one of the only places that you could meet somebody. You wouldn't just go up to anybody on the street necessarily because you didn't always know who was gay, who wasn't. Many people were in the closet and they would have freaked out. So it was very hard to meet people. So gay bars really were very, very important in the community. And they still are today, but not as important as they were back here for meeting people. 
A police raid usually happened early in the evening, and if the bar was lucky, they would have been tipped off so they could hide a bunch of liquor and continue business after the raid. The police would come in and turn on all the lights. Everybody would be lined up along the wall, verbally harassed, and they would have to present their IDs. If you didn't have ID or were a man dressed in drag or a woman dressed butch, you'd be arrested. Bar employees would also sometimes be arrested. Because, of course, you were serving alcohol to gay people. By 1969, the gay community in New York had had enough. On June 28, 1969, the gay community would make their stand and their frustration would erupt in riots. At 1.20 in the morning, eight police officers raided the Stonewall Inn. They expected the typical subjugation, but the 200 patrons refused to cooperate. They were all informed they were under arrest, but the cops needed more paddy wagons. As they waited for the wagons, a crowd began to form outside, and before long, it was ten times its original size. The wagons arrived, and the first to be loaded was a lesbian. She pushed back and refused to get in the wagon, and as she fought, she was hit in the head with a billy club. She was picked up and thrown into the wagon, and that was all it took. Some of the crowd pushed against the paddy wagon, trying to tip it over, while others threw beer bottles and bricks at the other wagons. There were ten officers against a crowd of 600, and in a true twist of irony, they ended up seeking shelter in the very gay bar that they'd made unsafe for the gays. Despite this being their place to love and dance, the rioters turned on Stonewall and threw anything they could at the windows, from bottles to rocks to garbage cans. Attempts were made to bust down the doors. The tactical police force was called in, and they managed to squash the rebellion and arrested a bunch of people. The streets were cleared by 4 a.m. Several people had been injured, including four of the officers. Damage to Stonewall was devastating. Everything was broken. This would not be the end of the riots. News spread quickly through Greenwich Village, and riots occurred on the next five nights. Things quieted down, and the raids stopped. The next year, on June 28th, a parade was hosted marching from Greenwich Village to Sheep Meadow in Central Park. This would be the first gay pride march, and they have continued in cities around the world all the way until today. I'll never forget my first pride parade, was so much fun, and even though at the time the city of Denver only gave us access to one side of Colfax Avenue, we were able to celebrate rather than hide who we were. It was just an amazing experience for me because I'd spent so many years hiding who I was and to be able to be out on the street and proud and the music and just be around all these people who were like you are. It was a very neat thing. As the years went by, we finally got the city to give us the entire street of Colfax Avenue so that we could have the parade down the whole street. I think you guys can imagine how difficult it would be to just have one side of the street open for a parade. So if you were on the other side, you'd have cars driving by. And it was just so stupid that they wouldn't give us the room or anything like that. But the Stonewall Inn did not go on. However, it closed. And for the next 20 years, a variety of businesses used the building. There was a shoe store, a bagel shop, and a Chinese restaurant. In the early 1990s, the block of Christopher Street between 6th and 7th Avenues was co-named Stonewall Place, and another gay bar named Just Stonewall opened in part of the building where the original Stonewall had been. Through the efforts of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, the area was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1999. Things went well for the bar until 2006 when it closed again due to mismanagement and noise complaints. Another group of investors took over in 2007 and renovated the neglected club, and it was reopened as the Stonewall Inn in March of 2007, and it's still going strong today. With this kind of history from prohibition to the launch of a national push for human rights, 
it's easy to believe that some energy is inside this building. And there are both patrons and employees who claim that Stonewall has ghosts. One employee said, We think we have ghosts. Doors slam if no one's there. So we say there are two guys and one girl ghost upstairs. It's an ongoing running joke. And the upstairs is indeed where most of the run-ins with apparitions take place. That's all I could find about the hauntings at the Stonewall Inn, but I'm sure if I ever got the chance to talk to employees there, I'd probably hear a lot more. I think we've got a lot of activity going on here. If you have been to the Stonewall Inn and had any experiences, I'd love to know more. The next location that we're going to hit is Harvey Milk's Old Castro Camera Shop. Harvey Milk was born on May 22nd in 1930 in Woodmere, New York. His parents were Lithuanian Jews who owned a department store. He worked in the store when he was growing up. It was also as he was growing up that he figured out he was gay. He attended New York State College for Teachers in Albany, which is now known as State University of New York. He studied math and history and became a writer for the school paper. Many of his columns featured commentary on diversity. When he graduated in 1951, he decided to enlist in the Navy, and he was enrolled in officer training. He did well and ended up stationed as a diving instructor in San Diego. His naval career would come to an abrupt end, however, when his orientation was discovered. He resigned at the rank of lieutenant junior grade. He decided to get a job as a teacher and did so working as a public school teacher on Long Island. He later would work as a stock analyst in New York City and then as a production associate for Broadway musicals. The Vietnam War would get him more active in politics and activism. He eventually made his way to San Francisco in 1972 and opened up a camera shop on Castro Street. The Castro District and gay culture go hand in hand. The Castro Street Fair has been hosted for 45 years and was started by Milk in 1974. He started it because of the discriminatory policies of local merchants who had tried to block two gay men from opening a store. It was an offshoot of the Castro Village Association, the first U.S. organization for gay businesses. The influence of the Castro Street Fair was much of why Castro transformed into the center of the LGBTQ community. Milk went on to announce that he would be running for the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. He lost the race, but he was now a prominent figure in politics. In 1975, he ran again for the combined San Francisco City County Supervisor seat and almost won. Mayor George Moscone appointed him to the city's Board of Permanent Appeals. This was a president and made Milk the first openly gay city commissioner in the United States. Milk ran for state assembly and lost, but this spurred him to champion an amendment that would replace at-large elections for the Board of Supervisors with district elections, and he won his next race. He was inaugurated as San Francisco City County Supervisor on January 9, 1978. He became an advocate for many people, especially the gay community. He once said during a speech, Gay people. We will not win our rights by staying quietly in our closets. We are coming out to fight the lies, the myths, the distortions. We are coming out to tell the truth about gays. For I'm tired of the conspiracy of silence, so I'm going to talk about it. And I want you to talk about it. You must come out. Many people hated Milk, and he received daily death threats. Former city supervisor Dan White was really angry. The bad blood between him and Milk went back to an early controversy over the building of a mental health facility for troubled use. Both White and Milk opposed it, but then Milk changed his mind and voted against White, who lost on the issue. White never forgot that and voted against every issue Milk supported after that. White would resign his seat on November 10, 1978, citing that the money was not enough to support his family. He then changed his mind, but the mayor would not let him back. 
Now White hated Mayor Moscone, too. On November 27, 1978, White managed to get into City Hall with a gun through a basement window. He went to Moscone's office and killed him, then walked down the hall and killed Milk. White used the Twinkie defense, which basically was claiming he'd had so much sugar that he'd lost his sanity so he was not accountable for what he did. And can you believe it? It worked. He was acquitted of murder charges and given a lesser sentence for manslaughter. People rioted on Castro Street and set police cars on fire. The police, in turn, raided gay businesses and beat people. Perhaps this is why Harvey Milk is not at rest. I mentioned that Milk opened up a camera shop when he first moved to San Francisco. This shop would become a neighborhood center. Milk's spirit is said to have returned here and taken up residence. Movie maker Gus Van Zant definitely felt this was the case as he filmed the movie Milk. For the film, Van Zant recreated the former Castro camera shop in the gift store that took its place. He tells the following story. The gift store owners were very into the legacy of the store and willing to let us close their shop down and move our set in. They had a mural of Harvey Milk. During a shot at night, there was a take where we were using most of the room and there were three or four actors in the scene. Some people were sitting on the sofa which was outside of the shot and during one of the takes, somebody walked in from outside and sat down on the sofa during the shot. After the shot was over and I yelled cut, he apparently got up and walked out. The actors were like, did you see that guy? I didn't see anybody, but they kept describing Harvey. So I figure it was the ghost of Harvey walking into the store for a brief second. Harvey Milk would make another appearance via a Ouija board in 2012. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to name a Navy vessel for Milk, and it just happened to be his 82nd birthday. Supervisor Scott Weiner said, LGBT people have always served in our armed forces. For many, many years, our community was hidden and oppressed in the armed services. Now, because of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, our community can serve openly and proudly. We must support our LGBT soldiers past and present. I can think of no better way to do that than to name a vessel for a Navy officer who went on to become one of the most important civil rights leaders in history. Another supervisor named John Avalos suggested they ask for Harvey Milk's opinion on a Ouija board. He described what happened as, We actually put our hands on the Ouija board and the letters G-O-O-D-R-I-D-D-A-N-C-E-D-A-D-T came out. We asked Harvey, and Harvey gave us these letters. Good riddance, don't ask, don't tell. It was quite clear that Harvey Milk would have been opposed to don't ask, don't tell. I can honestly say that's one aspect of this resolution that's really valid. And while I certainly am against using Ouija boards to talk to people, I found this to be a fascinating little story. The final location that we're going to talk about on this Pride episode is the Upstairs Lounge. This is a location in New Orleans. This was a bar known as the Upstairs Lounge, and it was located on the second floor of a three-story building at the corner of Charter and Iberville Streets. The tragedy that occurred here was made worse by the fact that this location had only one entrance, and patrons had to climb up some wooden stairs to get to the bar. We need to go back to the summer of 1973 in June. The French Quarter has always been an open and party kind of place, but back in the 70s, gay people still needed to keep their gathering together underground. It was the last Sunday in June, and was the final day of gay pride for the city. Such a celebration was new as Stonewall had only happened four years prior. Happening at the same time in America was a not-so-well-known targeting of gay churches. The Metropolitan Community Church, or MCC, had been founded in 1968 by Troy Perry. MCC churches were started in big cities, many of them having to share space at community centers 
or other community spaces. Earlier in 1973, a Nashville MCC was burned, as well as the Los Angeles headquarters for the MCC. A fledgling MCC congregation in New Orleans had asked the upstairs lounge if they could use the space for church services. Since the upstairs lounge was a gay bar, it was a no-brainer, and they said yes. The group would move services to their pastor's house just a couple of weeks before the upstairs lounge would be firebombed, but this was still a spiritual center for them. The afternoon of June 24th, the lounge hosted an all-you-can-eat buffet and free beer. Around 130 people attended. The beer finally ran out and only about 60 people stayed, mostly MCC members. They gathered around the piano and sang some songs together. At 7.56 p.m., the buzzer downstairs sounded. This usually meant that a cab had come to pick someone up, but no one had called for a cab. One of the guys went to the steel door that led to the stairs leading downstairs, and when he opened it, flames rushed inside the club. Someone had deliberately set the wooden stairs on fire. The bar was an immediate inferno, and as I told you, this was the only exit. There were windows, but they were boarded up or had iron bars over them. Some of the iron bars on the windows were far enough apart that a few people were able to squeeze through and jump down to the sidewalk. The local MCC pastor was Reverend Bill Larson, and he was at the lounge. He attempted to get through the bars and became stuck. He burned to death, wedged in the window. This would become an image of the mass murder as his body remained in that window into the next day. A bartender named Buddy Rasmussen knew where the emergency exit was, and he managed to get 15 people out. One of those men, MCC assistant pastor George Mitch Mitchell, ran back inside to get his partner, and both men ended up dying. 29 people died that night, and three more would die later from their injuries. More people died that night than died when the entire French Quarter burned down in 1788. Not only was it troubling that someone would set out to burn a gay club and murder gay people, but the city had a very tepid reaction. It was as if no one cared. Descriptions of the aftermath were horrible, and none of the coverage mentioned that it was a hate crime. People claimed it was God's judgment, and a cab driver even said, I hope the fire burned their dresses off. Two days after the firebombing, the story disappeared from headlines. And to be honest, I knew nothing of this until I heard Mark Bologna cover it on his podcast, Beyond Bourbon Street. And if you have not listened to that episode, I highly, highly recommend it. Mark does an excellent job with it. Major Henry Morris, chief detective of the New Orleans Police Department, said of the victims, We don't even know these papers belong to the people we found them on. Some thieves hung out there, and you know this was a queer bar. As if gay people didn't carry ID or were unworthy of identification. Churches refused to host memorial services. Clearly, there are many reasons why spirits would be here in the afterlife. We have painful deaths, murder, and no justice because nobody was ever caught in connection to this crime. Not to mention the community's reaction. Several victims were dumped into a mass grave at a potter's field because their shamed families wouldn't claim the bodies. The upstairs lounge was not rebuilt or reopened. There is a bar on the first floor under the lounge called the Jamani Bar. Patrons and employees all claim to have unexplained experiences. People feel as though they're being watched and that someone or something they can't see is there. Disembodied voices are heard both in this bar and on the third floor. Voices are also caught on EVP, and they've told investigators their names and that they don't want to be forgotten. Full-bodied apparitions have been seen walking on the second floor and in the kitchen area of the Jamani. And obviously, the vision of these ghosts is horrible as they are seen charred. The smell of smoke floats on the air, and I can only imagine that occasionally there's another smell as well. 
Yi history is important, and I'm glad that I was able to share a few key pieces of that history. Are these locations haunted? That is for you to decide. All right, so let's lighten things up a little bit now and get to talking about my most haunted 2019. I'm sure that these are going to change in the future as I continue to explore haunted locations and do some ghost hunting or paranormal investigations of my own. As a matter of fact, I have two of them coming up this weekend, and we also have the Villisca Axe Murder House reserved for September, so we've got lots of good things on the horizon. Now, for this second half of the episode, I am bringing on a voice that you've all heard before, my partner in crime when it comes to doing ghost hunting, someone who's gotten me more into tempting the spirits, Kelly, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for asking. So tempting the spirits in a respectful way, not in a harassing way at all. I definitely enjoy ghost hunting with you. We've had some pretty amazing experiences in terms of EVPs and things of other natures. So, Well, that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to join me doing my personal most haunted top 10 is because several of them on this list, you have been with me and experienced the same things. Yes, it has been really amazing. I mean, listening back to the recorded data that we got, I was so amazed to hear the EVP that we caught when we knew exactly what was going on. And yet there was still this other phenomena. Mm Mm-hmm. Phenomena. Oh, boy. (laughs) I believe before I met you, you'd only done one ghost tour, right? Yes, that is true. I did the Alaska one. We went around Anchorage with our guide, and he shared all the local haunts and everything. And then I actually got to go into that, that restroom that you had on the last, the bonus cast. It was just... It was really incredible. I really enjoyed it. I didn't have any kind of recorder at the time. All I did was take photos and take in the history and all the crazy experiences. Yeah, the bonus cast you're talking about is the haunted bathrooms one. Yes. Or the Pottergeist. Yes, the the Pottergeist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have definitely gotten you to do... Hey, hey, if you want to be in here, no squeaker. No, no. Where did that come from? I haven't seen that toy in ages. It was in, no. So I've gotten you to do a lot more ghost tours, and now we've even gotten into doing some ghost hunting. As a matter of fact, we're probably going to have a couple more places to add to this list of having experiences this weekend, because we're going to be at the Haunted America Conference, and we're ghost hunting two locations there. I am so incredibly excited. I haven't had the opportunity in the past to do tours like that to do ghost hunting. I've always been interested in it. I've always watched all the TV shows, but I never had anybody to do that with. So I am super excited to do that in Alton. Well, I've lost count of how many ghost tours I've done. And one of the reasons why I've really gotten into wanting to do more with the interactions is because I've kind of reached this place in my spiritual journey where I want to get the answers for myself. It's great fun to read all these other people's ghostly experiences and stuff, but I have to trust that they're telling the truth 
and that they really had those things happen. When I'm researching something on the internet, did it really happen to that person? Are they just making it up? But when I have it for myself, then I have all these questions that I need to start answering because it's like, what was that? How did that happen? Exactly. I mean, you can hear stories, you can enjoy the TV shows, you can enjoy other people's stories as much as you like, as much as you believe. However, once you receive that experience yourself, it changes everything. You obviously have binged the entire back catalog of History Ghost Bomb. I've obviously been here for the whole ride. (laughs) And for people who've listened, they've probably noticed how things have changed from the beginning to where I was more skeptical. I lean a little bit more towards believer now. I've changed some of my thoughts about things. For example, when it comes to child ghosts, we'll talk about this EVP that we got at Lillian Place in just a moment. But what we caught, we believe, was a child. Absolutely. I don't know how to explain that. I I think... For myself, I feel like, at least from what we've caught, I mean, for there, for the Queen Mary, I feel like that's where the children are comfortable. That's Mm -hmm. where they want to be. I don't know if it's residual. It may just be residual. But I don't feel like it's been a negative thing ever. I think what the problem is, is I've reached a place where I don't know what happens right after we die. And obviously, I don't <laughs> think anybody knows until you yeah, we'll get never there. know. We'll and it doesn't all... seem like anybody can tell us. No, and we'll have all kinds of questions when we get there. <laughs> I mean, that's just a given. Yeah, so for a child, we don't know that the minute they die, they move on to whatever's next. So now I do go more to a place where, yeah, I think it is possible that there are some child ghosts. I don't know exactly why or what what they're made from or are they just the spirit of a child? I don't know, but I. I don't necessarily think it's something demonic or evil that's impersonating a child. Right, right. No, I totally agree. The other thing is when it comes to what is a ghost, I've been all over the map. I have all different kinds of beliefs about what a ghost could be. Where are you at? (laughs) Well, I mean, I haven't had as many experiences as you, but in terms of how I feel about it, I just... I don't necessarily think that they are locked either here or there in terms of, okay, you either go into the light and then you don't have contact with people anymore or you stay here and you can interact. I feel like spirits kind of have that free will, I guess, if you will. (laughs) They can choose to interact with us, to connect with loved ones, to connect with family or friends, but yet they still are living their their higher purpose. I have to believe that you can cross back and forth because we hear so many near-death experiences that people are having where they see someone who's a loved one that's passed on before them. It's like they come back to get them. Yes, exactly. And, And that's like such a It happens all the time where people are getting ready to cross over and they just reach out to others and they're like, oh, there's Uncle Henry Mm -hmm. or my cousin Ruth or what have you. And I just feel like it's not one place or the other. Mm -hmm. So that's my belief. Well, obviously, I fall all along different lines and I get into quantum (laughs) physics, different planes of existence and portals and time-space continuum and bending of the curve and things like that. But I think, for me, 
eight times out of 10, where I land now is it's just some kind of energy that is stuck there. And I don't know why it's stuck there. I don't know if it's been absorbed. And the main reason why I say that is because if you look at a lot of the experiences that people talk about having, so many of them are, I had a weird feeling. Right. And I do feel that way in terms of residual type Mm -hmm. hauntings. The energy is stuck there. But in terms of like active connections Mm -hmm. with loved ones or friends or what have you, where where something has the intelligence and is interacting, I don't think it's something that is stuck there. I think it's something that is choosing to be there. And I don't feel like they can only be there or in heaven or there, you know, passed on. I don't know. I, I feel like it's very much a free will type of situation. Yeah, I mean, I can see what you're saying. I think why I get caught in the hole, it must be some kind of energy that's stuck there. It's just, I can't imagine for as much as we come and go in our real lives, that you would just be stuck in a house somewhere or something. Well, and that's why I think that with the residual, it's not always like an intelligent yeah. interaction. It's, it's just, like they say, it's something that's replaying as a recording. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just keeps replaying itself. So what I did is, obviously, I've been in a lot of haunted locations my entire life. And just doing the podcast, we're on episode 300 here, which is 300. So amazing. (laughs) Oh, my word. So that's 300 locations at least. And some of them are places that have multiple locations at like a city or something. Right. Of course, we've done some people and things like that. But suffice it to say, between the regular episodes and the bonus cast, I've covered over 300 haunted locations. (laughs) You're a rock star. I'm just saying. Now, obviously, (laughs) I haven't been to most of them. But I sat down and I went, well, let me write a list of the places, the haunted locations that I've been to that we've talked about on the show, whether I've mentioned it because it was a road trip thing or just a regular episode. And I had 25 of them that I wrote down. That's incredible. So we've got Mammoth Cave, Mineral Springs Hotel, which is one of the places we're actually going to be doing a ghost hunt at. So I'm so excited. King's Tavern, the Coliseum, Moses Cone Manor, Sorrel Weed House, the Driscoll Hotel, the Biltmore Estate, the 1725 Captain Taylor House, the old Charleston Jail, Disneyland, which we've both been to, just not together. Absolutely. And we will go in the future. Yes. Hotel Casadega. The Stanley Hotel, the Queen Mary, which we did together. Yes. Croke Patterson House, the Molly Brown House, the Sugar Mill in St. Augustine. You've actually been there too. Yes. <laughs> Cuban Club. Absolutely. Treehouse Bar in Orlando, Lillian Place House, which you mentioned it earlier. Was amazing. The Baker House, which we've both been to. Yes. Waverly Hills Sanatorium, Lemp Mansion, Ripley's Auditorium. <laughs> Looking forward to returning. And the St. Augustine Lighthouse. So out of these 25, then I put a little check mark if I'd actually had an experience there. And I was like, okay, and then once I've done that, then I'll pick 10 of them and then I'll rank them according to, you know, my top 10 most haunted places. Definitely. Well, it just so happens that I checked off 10 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Shocked. Shocked, I tell you. So what we're going to do is go through my top 10. And this is just my top 10. So these are places that I've been to that I've had experiences. 
not, you know, the 10 most haunted places that I think in the world because of stories I've read or research I've done. These are places I've been to that I've had something unexplained happen to me and I'm ranking them accordingly. All right. So number one is the King's Tavern in Natchez. And this is a location that I went into by myself. We were doing a ghost tour and there were a couple places that we could go into because we had a dog with us. Only one of us could go in. So I go in. This is the oldest building in Natchez and it's built like a clapboard house. So it's got a bunch of the wood on there. A lot of it was taken from barges and things like that to build it. There's some sun-dried bricks that were used for it. I believe, I know it has... I think it's got like two stories mm-hmm. and then it has an attic. And I went all the way up to the attic. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> so I go in there armed with an EMF and a little recorder. Nice. This is a place that the reason why it's called King's Tavern is because a guy named Richard King had bought it. It had already been around for about 20 years. It was originally built in 1789. So this is why this is the oldest building in Natchez. It goes way back. Naturally. And he decided he wanted it to be a tavern. And it had a couple of rooms where people could stay if they were traveling on the road. Well, he and his wife had this 16-year-old girl working for them as a servant. Her name is Madeline. And as happens in so many of these cases, he got eyes for that young girl. Oh, my. And the wife figured this out. And she was not very happy. So the legend here is that she either killed this young lady or hired some people to kill her. And then she was buried within the chimney wall of the fireplace. Good grief. Now, most people would say, pretty good story, pretty good legend. Well, it stops being a legend when you find a skeleton. Oh, man. So what happened is in the 1930s, they were doing some refurbishment. And they were dismantling the chimney to do some rebuilding. They not only found one skeleton, they found three skeletons. What? In this chimney. And two of them were male and one of them was female. And she still had a bejeweled dagger between her ribs. Oh, good grief. So clearly this person was murdered. Yeah. The other two, they're not sure. Obviously something happened to them to have them stuffed in a chimney. What in the world? I mean... So I'm not sure what all happened there, but a lot of people believe that that was Madeline's skeleton that was in there. And they believe that she haunts the place. So this is the one that I go in, I go up the stairs, and then I go up another set of stairs. And up in the attic area, they have a bunch of pictures of the different people who've lived here. It was a private home from, I believe it was like 1820 all the way to 1970s, the 1970s. It was just a private home. And now it's a bar and a tavern again. Yeah. So I'm up in this attic asking the questions with the recorder. I didn't get anything. No EVP. I get no EMF. This is where I decide I'll just go back downstairs. I've been up here long enough. I start to go down the stairs and I see that big picture of this beautiful woman on the wall there. It's one of those wraparound stairs Mm -hmm. and there's like a landing right there. So I stop at the top of the stairs and this is the one where I notice that she has the cool pin in her hair. I remember So I just happened to say, wow, that's a really cool pin in your hair. Because I'm thinking this is a picture of Madeline. I find out later it's not. They don't know who it is. But whoever is hanging out there with me, all of a sudden the EMF who did nothing but stay on that little green light went bam to red. So cool. And so I was like, whoa, I'm getting something here maybe. 
So I just continued to talk about this pin. And this is something that I always do whenever I've done any kind of ghost hunting. Now, I just am very conversational. And as a matter of fact, as we found most of the EVPs that we've caught are over or under us talking about something else. It's not even us trying to talk to something. Yes. And even the Baker house, when you're being conversational with a spirit that you think is there, it just seems to make such a difference and not just what does your name begin with? A, B, C. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, it just, how boring for them, mm-hmm. you know, really, if you think about it. And it just seems like we get so much more contact if we just treat them as if it's a real person and you're having a conversation. Exactly. And talking about something that's not the same. Yes. I'll joke around and be like, is anybody here? But that's me joking around. If I'm really going in somewhere and wanting something to talk to me, I might explain to them this thing that I'm holding because I don't know that they're aware of the technology we have nowadays. Yes. This thing, if you talk near it, it will be able to hear your voice and I will be able to hear you. Maybe not right now, but when I listen back to it later. Right. And and I think that's so important. You have to make that clarification, I think, every time. But just being conversational and just not focusing. If, if they pass from something negative, don't focus on that. Don't try to tempt them in a way that you're being aggressive with them. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't know. <laughs> Talk to them like you're their friend or you're a concerned citizen or I don't know. What, yeah, how to you're interested it. in what's going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were people. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so that might be why I started to get some kind of a response. Obviously, it wasn't that I was talking to Madeline through this painting or whatever, and I'm a skeptic, so I always wanted to debunk everything. So right. I took my little EMF up next to it to see if maybe there was a panel behind that that was setting it totally. off in some way. And I wasn't getting any readings from that. It was literally just binging up to red when it was happy about what I was saying. Then it finally started going more towards the middle, which is yellow and then nothing. So I went downstairs and figured, okay, we're done. And I happened to go up to the bar that was down there. And I just said, now I had this really cool experience up there. Can you tell me who is in the portrait on the stairs? And the bartender said, you know, I'm not really sure. It's not Madeline. I know that because they have her portrait hanging over the chimney, which is, you know, where her body was found. Right. But she goes, but maybe the owner knows who happened to just be standing right there. Oh, my goodness. So he comes over and we talked a little bit about it. And he said he wasn't sure who was in the picture. And I explained to him what happened. He goes, you want to see something really cool? And he gets his phone out and he says, watch this security camera footage that we have from one of the nights that nobody was in the bar. It was closed up for the night. And he puts this video down in front of me and I watch. It's a camera that is right directly on the bar, which is kind of in the shape of an L. And then it has a refrigerator, a small one that's right there underneath where the cash register and stuff would be. But you can see it plain as day on the security camera. And this is where if they open a bottle of wine or something like that, they can just throw it in there instead of having to put it somewhere back in a back area. It just is easier for the bartender to have it right there. You're watching this video. There's nothing going on. Doot, 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 doot. And then all of a sudden you see that refrigerator door open as if somebody's just pulling it open real slowly. It doesn't come slamming open. It just opens as if somebody's opening it. And then it just stayed open. And of course, the guy comes in the next day who is the owner and he's thinking, I'm firing the guy who closed up last night because he'd noticed that this had been happening every so often. And he's thinking this guy's not doing his job. 
So he goes to look at the security camera footage. I'm going to get the guy, catch him in the act of leaving that refrigerator open, and he's going to get fired. And that's what he sees. And he's like, oh, my God. (laughs) Job security. Yeah. So, and, you know, I trusted this guy. Sure. He had no reason to fake that. No. And it wasn't like it was something that was out on the Internet. He had it on his phone. Yeah. He owns the place. He points to where the camera is. I can see it. I believe that something I could not see opened that refrigerator. Yeah, it sounds that way. Definitely. So that was my number 10. Number nine, we got to go over to Colorado, my old stomping grounds to a place called the Croke Patterson Mansion. I don't know if this is necessarily the first experience, but if it's not, it's the second experience that I ever had because the it, it goes between that and the story that I've told about my sister and I hearing the dog walking across the linoleum in our kitchen when we were kids. Right. So I would have been about the same age. And what happened is people were always like, how did you get interested in ghost tours and going to these haunted locations? Well, my mom said one year for Halloween, we were going to go do some haunted houses. And I don't like haunted houses that are jump scare <laughs> places. So I was like, what? That's where you and I don't differ in many places, but I definitely <laughs> That's one that we do. I know. One of these days, I will go out to Universal <sighs> Horror Nights or something with you. I'll put you in front of me and be like, you go Oh, no. Front. Oh, no. I My sons will be with us and I'll put Jared in front of okay, both of us. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. As long as you can I'm in, not leading the way. You can, be in beh- you can be in the back. I'll be in the middle and Jared will be in front. <laughs> so this is a house that was part of these. It was actually real haunted houses that were historic homes that are in Capitol Hill in Denver. Nice. And... So we were going to get to go inside of them and hear the stories about it. And that is when I absolutely fell in love with haunted history and ghost tours. I was like, I want to do this all the time. So cool. So it got me started early. We go into this Croke Patterson mansion there. It's obviously it's named for the different families who have lived there over the years. It has been through so many hands. It's not even funny. And I believe it was in the Croke family. I can't remember if it's the Croke or the Patterson family, but one of them had a child die in the Mm. home. The mother was devastated. For some reason, they buried the baby in the wall because they do oh, unearth the yeah. little skeleton later. I'm not sure why the I baby was put yeah. in this wall. But we go down to this basement area where they found the baby. And at the time, I'm sure it's different now, but it, they had where they had taken this chunk of the wall out and you mm-hmm. could put your head in there and right. kind of look into it. And the minute I did that, I know what people are talking about when they say the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It was, you know, I felt this cold feeling. I was very uncomfortable. I went from putting my head in there to sitting in our caravan outside I bet. in probably a minute. <laughs> And my mom comes flying out there because she's like, what in the hell? Diane was just like in that room and out of the house. When you told me that story originally, I mean, I just got goosebumps all over. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It just freaked me out. Being in that situation and having that experience, I mean, it just gives me chills right now. And this house has so many stories with it where guard dogs that were in the house, you have these Doberman pinchers that threw themselves out of upstairs windows and died. I remember that. Them so bad. Pete Boyles did a radio show there for KHOW and every Halloween he would go and do like an overnight at a haunted place. And he did the Croke Patterson several times and they would have experiences there. 
one day they'd taken, one of the guys was downstairs and he'd taken a picture and it looks like this ghost is sleeping under a blanket. Oh my goodness. Down in the basement. And one of the guys that was a producer or something, he had come upstairs and they were all getting ready to leave and he goes, oh, there's still somebody downstairs and they're looking around going, no, everybody's (laughs) here. And he's like, no, I saw somebody laying down there. And I think that's Uh when they went down and took a picture and that's when they saw it. Well, it sounds like we need another road trip. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm all good for road trips. So it doesn't sound like that big of an experience. And it's not really anything that I can definitively say I saw a ghost or felt a ghost or something. But it was the first time that I ever had such an uncomfortable feeling that I was like, I need to get out of this location. So whatever energy was there was negative enough that and I've never felt that way anywhere else. And it's kind of funny because people ask me, what's the scariest place you've been in? And I always say, well, I've never been scared in a place. But I guess I would have to say I was scared at that time. Well, so how old were you again when you were there? I would have been a teenager. I'm not sure exactly. It would have been about 14, 15. And it was one of the first times where you were really interested in it. So are you really sure it was negative? I'm just wondering. You know what? You're right. I don't know. I just know that it was uncomfortable enough that I wanted to get out of there. And the other experiences that I've had since then have just made me go, wow, and excited me. Right. Well, after that, Mm -hmm. in the beginning, then you do have that curiosity. So I'm just wondering if maybe it wasn't, you know, necessarily something super experienced. I mean, obviously, a baby in a wall, very negative. However, in terms of what you experienced, whatever spirit might have been reaching out to you if there was one. Maybe it was just a matter of it made you uncomfortable because you weren't really looking looking for or expecting that type of experience. Very true. Is so can we go visit? <laughs> yes. Okay. Because <laughs> actually, I think it's a bed and breakfast now. Okay. So it's a place we can actually stay at, whereas before it's always been a private residence. Ah, all right. So... I look forward to staying there sometime. Okay, me too. Number eight is a place that you have been in as well. This one is Lillian Place House. Yes, Lillian Place House was amazing. And, you know, in Daytona Beach, it just had so many antiques. The interior was just incredible with the way that the the walls were painted. I mean, it was made to look like wallpaper and just all the artifacts that they had there and the wealth of knowledge that the tour guy had was just incredible. And I loved seeing all the different things that they had there. What was really cool is we were the only two people. So it basically was a private tour. Yes, definitely. And he talked and talked. You could tell that he really loved history. At first, when he started to take us in, I'm like, he's kind of an old codger. He's he's probably not going to be real happy to have us here. And I knew in the back of my mind that I'd heard it was haunted and I wanted to ask him. But I was like, let me get a feel for this guy before I ask him anything like that. He was very personable once we get, Mm -hmm. you know, got started. And the antiques in there, stuff I had never seen before. And he would ask Mm -mm. us, what do you think this is and what it does? Yes, that was so cool. I don't know, like the, the pop bottles. Oh, yeah. It had the little uh, glass bead that would be in Mm -hmm. it. And that that was what held in the carbonation. carbonation. I'd never seen anything like that. So most of the stuff in the house was not from the family that had lived there. No, it had been donated for the most part. But there were there were several items that were original. 
Do you remember what was really unique about the stairs that he pointed out? Oh, the the baluster where yeah. they would hide the was it the deed to the house? Is yes. that what it was? Yes. Yeah. It was so cool. First of all, and it had the T's, the letter T. Oh, was yes. what made the staircase going right. up the banister. And that was custom. Their last name, I think, was Taylor or something like that. I yeah. can't remember. Right. But yeah, so they had this custom. And then at the very, whenever you're in one of these Victorian homes and you see this big grand staircase that's there and it has the pole at the very base where it starts, it's always bigger. And you can right. take the top of that off and they put all their important documents in that because the fire department would know if this house is on fire get to that first and get it exactly. emptied out. Yes. And that's why they bring axes and stuff in too, so they could just chop that whole part of the stair off and yeah, take it with Yeah, I them. had no idea. I didn't either. So I thought that <laughs> was fascinating that he shared that with us. Yeah, he was an amazing tour guide. I mean, you could see the passion that he had for not just the antiques, but the whole entire home itself mm-hmm. and all the history behind it. I mean, we could have spent... Another Easily. hour at least. Oh, I was going to say like four hours <laughs> going over all the different things that were there. If we had individually gone from item to item and asked questions, it was just a wealth of knowledge, basically. Well, he it told us really about cool. the other Victorian mansions that the family owned because yes. they owned like five of them in town. So we drove by two other ones. Yeah. And he told us, I mean, he gave us such good directions. We found them. We, yeah, we immediately. Exactly <laughs> and then we went over to the cemetery, which we talked about on the Haunted Cemeteries. Right. That I, I wish that the bar was great and everything across the street and they were having a good old time. But the music was so loud and I would have loved to have been able to ask more questions on the recorder and see if we had gotten any kind of feedback, any kind of EVPs. But uh, everything was just so contaminated. Well, what we did is we ended up taping the tours and I do that a lot so that I have the information for doing my research right, and writing a script right. later. Well, because we did this as a bonus cast, I just played a bunch of the tour so that people could get it right from him because it was just yeah. so neat to hear it from him. So we get all the way done with the house and we come back to the top of the landing of the staircase <laughs> and he's like, you know, do you have any other questions? And I'm like, he's been a really nice guy. I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there and you know, if he kind of poo-poos me away, Fine. So I just said, have you ever had any weird, unexplained experiences in the house, like spirituals type stuff? It was like a light switch. He got so happy. (laughs) He was so excited (laughs) to talk about that. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe it. He just was like, bam, yep, people have had all (laughs) kinds of experiences here, and here's everything that's happened. So we get done talking about all that stuff. And so, you know, we hadn't had any experiences while we were there, but he had some really cool stories to share. Yes, he absolutely did. Get home and like I usually do, I'm listening back to the tour and taking my notes and stuff like that. And then there's a room upstairs. You want to tell it? Initially, when we were on the landing area, I kept getting vertigo like really bad. And I was looking around. I was looking at the floor to see if the floor was level. There wasn't print wallpaper or anything like that. You know, anything out of sorts on the walls because I kind of tend to get situational vertigo vertigo mm-hmm. in terms of like really active colors or patterns or things like that. And I just kept feeling really dizzy and off. I think you asked me, do you feel okay? I, I just was feeling off. Well, and what happened is we walked into the room that he said this is the ch- this was the children's room. Yeah. And they had some 
dollhouses in there that some kids had made. Mm -hmm. And there were some other like dolls and things like that. And when we stepped into the room and turned back towards the door, I felt a little bit weird too. Yeah. And so I could tell that you were kind of like, look like you were rocking a little Yeah. Bit. I mean, I, I literally reached out to the wall to just hold on to it a little bit. And one thing that had really stuck with me because I had not seen this type of rocker before was a rocking chair that's right that was embroidered that was it, it was like a children's rocker mm -hmm. it had these springs that face upright they're horizontal to the floor and my grandmother had had that and I had inherited it and the one that he had in that room looked so much like it and so it was that that I took most note of and then also a children's desk that looked very much like the one that my father had when he was in primary grades mm -hmm. you know it had its own fold down writing portion then you lift it up and there's the inkwell and all of that stuff when I was out of that room I just yeah I felt <laughs> very discombobulated yeah I mean I kind of looked down at the floor because I know a lot of the time why people will feel weird in a historic home is because everything is settled weird right and people will get a weird feeling because exactly. the floor is not level anymore and that's why I look down too and I didn't see anything that looked weird about it mm -mm. but then of course as we're listening back to the EVP later and I'm going to go ahead and play that for everybody he has been talking to us about this child's desk Right. And we wonder if something was attached to it. This is one of the children's rooms. And this is one of the children's rooms. And so, Kelly, what did you think it said? So to me, it sounded like it was saying present mm -hmm. as if a teacher was calling roll. Yeah. And the child was saying present. It definitely. Yes. The key thing to me is that sounds like a child. Oh, Absolutely. And we were in the child's room. Right. It was a child's desk. The EVP goes with it. Right. And I think it could be just, you know, residual because we didn't have any mm -hmm. direct contact or, or questions answered or, you know, anything that came in talking while we were having mm -hmm. a discussion, you know, with the tour guide. But it was <laughs> it was certainly incredible. This is one of the children's rooms. And... For my next place, number seven is the 1725 Captain Taylor House. This is in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And this is the one I will go ahead and pull this piece of video up and I will throw it up on Instagram so that everybody can see here. This is the video that I play whenever I'm giving talks and things like that to show people that light that's on the side table that comes on all by itself. Nice. So what happened is we were doing a tour that was mostly outside, but they did have two homes that they owned. And one of them, they had a museum and a shop in. And then the other one was like a place where people could stay. The room that we went up to was called a birthing room. Oh, wow. So I guess at the time, that's what it was used for. <laughs> okay. That's got to have some <laughs> crazy energy. Yeah, we had it. this huge group. I mean, God, there was probably 40 or 50 people. And then they split us into about halfway through the tour when we got to the cemetery mm -hmm. and then they split us into two again to go into the houses. So there was only probably about 10 of us that were in this room together and we're all standing in a circle and the woman who'd been playing the caboose for the tour, basically making sure that everybody kept up, 
she took our group in there. So she's telling us this story about down in the kitchen. And this is a house that had all these weird masks all over the wall because oh the guy my collected God. them and they were like, you know, from <laughs> Africa and stuff. So, and some of them were really creepy. Uh. So you've already got that downstairs. So she's telling us that they were all down in the kitchen this one time and they were doing an investigation. And one of the women that was sitting at the table had long hair. And all of a sudden the hair on the back of her head starts getting pulled up towards oh the ceiling. Oh my word. <laughs> so we're all mesmerized listening to the story and all of a sudden this light, because we had an overhead light that was already on. Yeah. And then there was this table lamp that was sitting on a side table. It just pops on. Okay. And I'm standing there looking right at it. Not only that, but as I said, I like to record these tours that I'm doing. With this one, I was actually making a video on my camera phone. Okay. Well, we'd been in the house for a while and I dropped my hand down because I was tired of holding it up and I was just trying to get the stories that she was telling anyway. So I just right. needed to record what she was saying. The lamp was to my side. I'm holding the camera in front of me because that's where she's standing and telling the story. Okay. The table lamp comes on. I look over and I'm like, that lamp just came on. I look down at my hand and my phone is pointed towards the lamp which means that my hand has cranked back in a way that is not very That's comfortable. That's weird. That you would never be holding oh, your phone. My gosh. And it was, I caught it. And that's why I got it on video. And it's amazing when you watch the video, you'll see that it starts to float away from her <laughs> being on it to on. It was like as if I knew that that lamp was going to come on. Right. And so this must be rigged, you know, because she had it on the lady. Then all of a sudden she puts it on that <laughs> table lamp that turns on. But obviously, I didn't know anything about That's crazy. This. All I could think of was that it was pulling energy right. from my phone or something pulled my hand that way because yeah. there's no way my hand would have been pointing towards that. And I looked down and I went, I, I think I caught that on video. So the woman stops talking because everybody's like, that lamp just came on. And she's like, right. oh, that's Nathaniel. Who haunts Hi, the place. Nathaniel. So then she's like, Hi, Nathaniel. And she goes over and she turns it off. Then she just continues to tell her story like nothing. Oh my I'm gosh. like, I, this is the first time I'd ever had something happen on a ghost tour. Right. So I was like, Oh my God, I'm on a ghost tour where nothing has ever happened before. I always tell people nothing happens on a ghost tour anyway, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Something happened. Now That's I so know cool. stuff happens all the time. Yes, it does. But, so, I mean, I was just like, and I was so excited when I got downstairs and I, I went bet. up to her and I said, I think I caught that on video and stuff. And we tried to debunk it. I asked the of guy course. who was standing by the light switch, will you hit that? None of the light switches in the room went to that. The only thing, and I've said this many times when I tell this story, I wish I would have looked to make sure it wasn't on a timer because that's the only thing I didn't check for, but I don't know why that lamp would have been on a timer because it wasn't the lamp we were using for light or anything right, like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, as being open-minded skeptics, you you do want to double check everything, but I mean, the likelihood of that being the case, I kind of doubt that that was the situation. Yeah. So that made it a number seven for me because not only was it a visual experience, but I, I mean, I'd never had something like that happen before. It's one thing to catch an EVP that you hear later. Sure. Feeling. But to have that happen. Yeah. I was like, wow. Right this then is and what there. People are talking about the light mm -hmm. turned on by itself. Very cool. Number six is the Treehouse Bar in Orlando. I did this one when we did the o Orlando Ghost Tour. 
and you go through a lot of haunted locations in downtown Orlando. This one is called the Treehouse because what happens is you go in and you go up these stairs that are painted like a tree and it looks like tree leaves all along the side. It's as if you are going up into a treehouse. Oh, and very on top cool. Of it is this it was a pretty small bar and my understanding now cuz I I don't know much about Orlando. I try to stay away from downtown. <laughs> Is that this was multiple bars that were connected to each other called like the attic and I can't remember the tavern is another one or something. So it's like multiple ones and you could go from one to the next one to the next one to the next one. Talk about bar hopping. Yeah. (laughs) But the thing is, the treehouse seemed to be the only one that was open when we were there. I don't know if we went on a weeknight or if it was a Sunday night or something, but it wasn't really hopping. There was a few people in there just drinking, but Mm -hmm. the place that looked like it was probably the dance area... There was nobody in there. So we're in there with our tour guide. And this is the same people that we did the Baker House with. It was the American Ghost Adventures. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we They're had a, fantastic. They are amazing. And they go all over and do all sorts of tours in different cities like Savannah. Yeah, stuff, I so. definitely want to do more. We'll be joining them yeah. for other stuff. And I definitely, the Lakeside Inn over in Mount Dora. Oh, heck I've yeah. I've heard rave reviews Absolutely. about that. So I want to do that. Anyway, so... This is the first time I'm ever going to have a personal experience where we're doing the flashlight experiment. And that's the one where you turn the flashlight off just enough that it, right. you unscrew it enough that it turns off and then you set it down and see if you get it to respond to you with yes, no questions, turning on and off the light. And that's what happened with this one. And it seemed to coincide with the questions that he was asking. So a lot of people say, you know, it's just that it was heating up and blah, blah, blah. Well, they had it timed really well because when he would ask it to turn on that flashlight, it did. And then on top of that, we had other, there was like another set of disco lights that were up in the corner of this dance area. <laughs> yeah. And we seemed to have some kind of interaction with that. Well, that's cool. Off, which was because he's like, that should not be turning on and off like burn, it is. Baby yeah, it was almost like, because it was like those, the, how you have all these, it had like a main light and then all the little lights. That right. Were it, and it would right. Kind of do things in sync. And it would That's like cool. turn on, and then all of a sudden the little lights would go. Bleep. Oh my god! Almost like it was syncing with something. So it was. That's really neat. Yeah. So whatever was in there seemed to be having some kind of conversation with us, and this elevated it even more to me than just having a light turn on and off by itself. Now I've got a flashlight, and it's communicating, which is why right. this one ups itself into an even more haunted location. Right. Very cool. So that's how I'm getting to these rankings is based on. You know, this experience was, eh, maybe it was an experience, maybe it wasn't with the EMF. Then you go to the Croke Patterson where it was a feeling that was pretty intense for me. And now we're getting into, wow, we're having communication with other spirits and it's like real time and really cool and... Yeah, definitely. I don't know anything about the history of this bar, so I can't really tell you. I just know that all of the buildings that are down there in downtown Orlando that we were going through are very old. Gotcha. I'm sure at some point this place was a speakeasy brothel. Oh, I would expect. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I, I can't remember what he had told us about it. And when I looked online, I couldn't find anything about the history or of it. Or a disco I, club. Yeah, something. <laughs> it, it probably was at some Yeah, time. yeah, I'm sure. Number five, this one might up itself a little bit more on this top 10. It's the Mineral Springs Hotel. 
because <sighs> now we're going to experience wait. it in a ghost hunt. Yes. I've been in this building twice. And the reason why this one ranks a little bit higher is even though I haven't been into the areas that are quote unquote, the more haunted areas, which is we're going to get to go into where the springs used yes. to be down into that swimming pool area where people have had I'm all so kinds of experiences. I'm so excited to check it out. I've heard of people who've been down in that pool feel like somebody has just swum past them. Like they could feel the legs kicking wow. against them or hands pushing off, off of them or feel water. Yeah. When we were in there, I was going around with my recorder. So I didn't have any experiences at the time, but I definitely picked up stuff. And I think I did for a couple of reasons. Not only is this place got a history that has some hauntings connected to it, and we'll talk about it on a future episode. I don't want to get too much into it right now because right, you know no. we're going to do an episode on it after yeah. we've been there. <laughs> there is a torture museum inside of here too. Oh boy. And it has real <laughs> implements of torture. Oh, man. <laughs> so not only did I pick up an EVP in an area of something that I couldn't explain that just sounded, it, it was some kind of a voice that I couldn't understand. When I go over to the torture museum, it has like a gate that's there. So you can't go into it when it's closed. Yeah. I put my recorder through there. Oh, God. <laughs> and I will go ahead and play the EVP here. But to me, it sounds like there's something whispering and that it's whispering something like, you know, God, please help me. Somebody who sounds like they're suffering. Oh in some my way. God. Well, he did a good job of his job. See what you guys think. I could play it again. Well, he did a good job of his job. So I just thought that that was pretty creepy. So not only do you have something, these torture implements that can have all kinds of energy attached oh, to I'm it. Oh, I'm sure. But then yeah. there's a lot of stuff that's gone in in this hotel that uh, we've got some spirits here. There are apartments there that are upstairs. People have had lots of experiences in there. There's a metaphysical shop that's down on the lower level. They've okay. had a lot of experiences in there. So this place seems like it's a pretty haunted place and we'll get to feel it a little bit firsthand. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds like a, it would be someplace that you would expect to be pretty active. Number four is Ripley's Auditorium. <laughs> Not only is this place creepy during the day, but when you go in there at night? Super creepy. Oh my gosh. OMG. <laughs> the reason why this is number four on my top 10 is I have not been in this building without having some kind of experience. Yeah. The first time I was in there, the girl put a flashlight along the wall and asked the girl who haunts the location, or at least one of the women, they believe there's two female ghosts that are here, right. to turn on the flashlight. And sure enough, it turned on. And I was actually doing a live video at the time. I think it was back when Twitter, it was back Periscope. when there was Periscope on Twitter. Yeah, was, And yeah. everybody who was watching that got to see this flashlight. It kind of did this whole little, it didn't like, boom on it kind of slowly came on and then when she asked her to turn it off it did this weird kind of blink 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 fade out mm -hmm. which i mean if you're turning a flashlight off it's either on or off right I've never seen where they comes on slowly and goes off slowly so and there's people i'm sure that could say well that was because it was heating up slowly so it turned on and then it was cooling off slowly so it well turned off, but, but i mean we had those experiences at the baker house and it mm -hmm. was like immediate 
for the well, most part. Well, and it does it. The thing is, she said, can you turn that flashlight on? And it turned on. Mm-hmm. And then when she asked yeah. her, she asked her a couple times to turn it off. And she did it. Yeah. We also have walked through there with EMFs that have just gone nutso. So the EMFs go crazy with the energy that's in there. The thing is, this is a place that is full of artifacts. Oh, I mean, who knows where skulls. the energy is coming from? I mean, from. you probably got attached. That place in there. is crazy. Now, so the, cool. the place you go in to get your tickets, they have a bunch of pictures there that right. are ghost pictures and things. And one of mm-hmm. the cool things is one of the pictures in there I trust beyond a shadow of a doubt. I've put it up on Instagram. And these are some friends of mine that are uh, ghost investigators down here in Florida called Peace River Trackers. And they mm-hmm. got to do an overnight there. And they caught what sure looks like a little kid sitting in that main room there. Right. On one of the, like, there's different levels. And there's, like, this center area that's wide open. Like, if you jump Right, it's over like an atrium. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But it's yeah. indoors. Exactly. So you, if you jumped over that top balcony, you would fall four or five stories. Oh, easily. Yeah. So, but each of them has this wraparound area that you can look right. down. And they have all these different machines and artifacts and things along it. And there is what looks to me like a child sitting cross-legged on the floor outside one of those doors. Yeah. I know the people that took that. I trust them. Yeah. I that <laughs> I wish I could have taken that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is also the place that has that vortex room. And this is where what happened, the story, the legend that goes here is that there is Mr. X. He is some kind of a rich politician. He's having an affair with this woman. Yeah, not a good man. No. And he's decided that he doesn't need to be having an affair with this woman anymore. And she is very upset by this and is not going to leave him alone. They happen to be staying here because it was a hotel at the time. It's really cool. It looks like a castle. It does. And he has her come to his room and he strangles her in the room. So one of the things that people will feel in this vortex room is difficulty breathing, that kind of thing. And the very first time I was ever in this room doing a tour we had a toddler with us, and all of a sudden, it sounded like he was coughing and choking. Yeah. Yep. And he got calmed down by his mother a little bit. After then, she took him out, right? Well, what happened is he calmed down a little bit, and then he started to do it again, and then she left the room, and mm-hmm. he was perfectly fine. We get done talking in that room. I go up to her, and I said, you know, has your child been coughing all day? Has he got a cold or anything like that? And she said, nope. That was the only time yeah, that he's coughed so crazy. Today. And I said, wow, that's weird since they were talking about how people feel like they're choking in there. And she said, I know. So she knew exactly what right. I was insinuating. Right. I wonder if the child was picking up on that energy on his throat. We had another young person, I think he was about 12 or 13, that said he felt a little weird in there too. Mm-hmm. Kids, you know, sometimes when they're being told yeah, they- those stories can make things up. But I had a feeling that he was being legit. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, they experience a lot more than what we do. Exactly. So- that, those are the experiences that I've had in there. I would love to see if we ever caught an EVP in there. I've taken recorders in there with me, and so far I haven't gotten some weird pictures with some weird light anomalies in there. I'm trying to remember. I don't know if any of those made it up on Instagram or not. I'll have to look back through the posts that I have up there. But we'd gotten some really weird light uh, bursts that looked like squiggly white lights in mm-hmm. the pictures and stuff. That were kind of weird, and EMFs were going off crazy at the same time. So it right. makes you think that something was going on there. Anyway, so this woman had died. There's another woman who died there as well. She was burned up in a fire that same night. 
what happened is he put the girl that he had killed in a bathtub and tried, I don't know if he was going to try to make it look like she'd committed suicide or something. This other woman saw too much. We think that he killed her too. Or he at least locked her in so that she was up on this upper area and set that part of the building on fire. And people to this day will still see that woman up in that upstairs area, which is now just like an AC unit. Yeah, I think so. I remember the story. They'll see her in the window looking like she's yelling for help. Right. Number three is the St. Augustine Lighthouse. This is another (laughs) location that I have yet to go into where I haven't had some kind of experience. I need to get inside there. Yes. Yes. We need to get you up in there. You've only been on the outside and taken pictures, right? Yeah. We need to do the Dark of the Moon tour. But this is the one people have heard me tell this story, not only on the episode that we've done, but I tell it every chance I get whenever I'm being interviewed, because this was such an amazing experience. It was the first thing, you know, other than having that light turn on in Plymouth, this one was like, oh my God, what just happened? (laughs) Where's my change of underwear? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, it didn't really scare me. It just it was that it was one of those right. moments where I was just in awe. Yeah, just more incredible than anything. Yeah, you can't explain it any other way than something I could not see. Yep. Locked this door. And exactly. what happened is we were all inside of this lighthouse. It's at night. They set you free at the end of the tour to kind of do your own little investigation. So we decided we wanted to go in there, see if we could catch anything for EVP. We had an EMF detector with us. We're just looking at some of the displays on the um, bottom area there. Denise was with us and she wanted to see if she could go back up the lighthouse. So she goes out to ask the tour guide if she could do that. Right. And me and another girl are standing in there and all of a sudden we hear somebody knocking on the door. And I was like, that's (laughs) weird because the door was cracked open. Right. should be able to just come right back in and it continues to bang. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll go get the door. Well, I go over there and it looked like it had this little lock thing, looked like it was broken because it was kind of pushed out. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh gosh, I wonder if the lock broke. So I'm trying to get the door open <laughs> oh, on my crap, side. I'm locked in here. <laughs> my dad is with us. He's on the other side of the door. He's trying to get it open on his side. Yeah. We had another big guy with us on my side. He's trying to get it open. So you got all these people trying to get this door open. It is not budging. And then here comes the tour guide. He puts his key in the deadbolt, which was not the thing I was looking at and thought was broken. Right. That, I, I said, well, this looked like it was broken. He goes, that has nothing to do with the door. It's like an old thing. So it crazy. It hangs there. Yeah. So he gets the door unlocked. And what the crazy thing about it is, first of all, it's a deadbolt that you have to use a key to open and close. It didn't have a little turn deadbolt anywhere. So yeah. nobody on our end could do it. And he was the only one with a with key. With a key. Yep. And he was across <laughs> the yard. So... Gee, I wonder what could have happened. Yeah. So the only explanation is that something we could not see. Something else locked it. Locked it. And it needed a key. So how did a ghost do that? It wasn't like it could turn a deadbolt, you know, the little knob. It had to somehow play with whatever's inside of a lock Mm -hmm. to lock that door. And it is little trickster spirits, children. (laughs) There's a couple little girls that haunt this. They, uh, Died because of an accident. They were playing on the little cart that would go down these tracks that they had that would go down to the bottom of the hill and bring the supplies back up as they were building the lighthouse. That would have been me. I would have been in that. Not me. (laughs) I am not a roller coaster person at all. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! And the last time they went down the hill, it popped over that end that was supposed to have stopped them and went right into the water. And the cart, (sighs) the box came down on top of them. So they were trapped. Right. 
and it killed two of the little, actually there was three little girls that were killed. One of them was a friend of theirs. They think it was a servant's daughter or something. Right. Yeah. She was there hanging out with them. And I believe there was a little boy in there too. Yeah. He was the only one. that was Two girls and a boy, I believe, right? I think it was three girls and a boy. Oh. And he was the only one that was, they were able to rescue. The three girls died. Two of them were sisters and they're the ones that they believe are there. The best story I have from there is not something that I experienced, but I would totally be doing that. The guides tell the story that people sit along this wall in the keeper's house while they're hearing Mm -hmm. ghost stories. And one time they were doing that. They said, let's move to the next room. And they get up and this person takes a step forward and falls down. (laughs) And the reason why is because their shoelaces were tied together. Right. (laughs) Obviously, they didn't do it to themselves. Nobody that was in their party did it to them. So they believe one of the little spirits tied those shoelaces together. I'm all about the April Fools. (laughs) (laughs) I also, uh, when I was there, there is a ghost named Pete who likes to be down in the basement. He's down in the basement of the lighthouse Mm -hmm. area or in the keeper's house. He's down in the basement of the keeper's house. He is a bit of a a trickster or poltergeist. And we had a girl on our tour who said that she felt like something poked her because all of a sudden she was like, ow. And she goes... Mm -hmm. Felt like something poked my ribs. I have my recorder going, and it really sounds on the EVP to me like it was me. Oh, wow. And it sounds like it's talking right into my recorder, and I'm uh-huh. across the room. Very cool. So I'll go ahead and play that EVP right now. <laughs> um, throw hats. No. Knock hats off. No, he doesn't poke people. Don't tell me he pokes people. Something already poked me. <laughs> <laughs> but with ladies... He's much more favorable. Yeah, so to me it sounds like it's saying, it was me. So I'm wondering if it was Pete saying that he's the one who poked that girl. Ladies. Ladies. Number two is the one that you've mentioned a couple of times so far, the Baker House. Ah. (laughs) This is a place that had not had any tours or investigations. Basically what they do is they do like a little Christmas decoration thing. They set up a bunch of trees. And people would come to see the decorations. Right. They decided they wanted to start doing some more historical tours. And they had enough experiences going on there that they thought, well, maybe we could do some ghost tours here. That was such a cool experience to be in there as one of the first tours for something like that. Basically, I think before we went in, the paranormal investigators went in there once. Right. And did their investigation. And Mm -hmm. then they brought us in the next time they were in there. So this was only their second time being in there. And oh my gosh, the activity. This was the only time I've been in a location where a door has opened on its own. Uh huh. We hear that story all the time. But I've never so experienced cool. it. And what was weird about it. It's such a tightly latched door. I mean, mm-hmm. something turned it, turned the knob. And literally, I mean, it wasn't just something that could just blow open. Well, and you could hear in my recorder, you could hear the doorknob turning. Right. At first, we thought there was a guy who had been outside mm-hmm. that worked at this, uh, at the Baker house. Yeah, he had like the water bottles and yeah, everything. taking pictures. So I thought he was coming in from outside. I think he worked with the docents. Yes. And the last time I'd seen him, he was outside taking pictures and wandering around. So I mm-hmm. thought he was coming in. Of course, after we figured out that it was not him coming in, I realized he was standing in the room with us. Right. <laughs> so it definitely was not him coming in. But we had another, I think there was two, what we had is we had two investigators that were leading the ghost hunt part, and right. then we had two docents who were yes. telling us some of the history stuff. So the docents were standing near the door 
where we were standing as well because we could see the door yeah perfectly and all of a sudden we heard them like giggling and saying <laughs> well go ahead come right come right, right in. in yeah and we're Welcome. like looking over and going <laughs> what's going there's on nothing coming in the door what are they, they had had that to? experience before though and they they just they went over and closed it and said yeah. that was somebody coming and we were like Oh my God, that door just opened. And I checked that door later. I mean, it's just, it, it couldn't just blow open. No. Mm-mm. And there wasn't even, there was barely a breeze. There were, there was the one window that was open that had the curtains and they were shears and they mm-hmm. were barely moving. I mean, it was such a hot day. Yes. <laughs> it was very hot in there. <laughs> the docents reacted normally. Like, this is just what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, we welcome them in. <laughs> we had several flashlights there yes, in different areas, different rooms, and they would come on and respond to different things. The interactions with that were really incredible. Direct responses to Absolutely. questions. I had no doubt that something was communicating to us via yep. the flashlights. So we had so much of that going on. Then they also brought dousing rods, which you and I had never used before. Mm-mm. And we both held them and had them move. Yes. And so we got to see what that feels like and to know that so you and bizarre. I have no idea what these are, what they're supposed to do. So no. there's no way we were rigging it. And they it. were totally reacting. Mm-hmm. And I kept moving positions too, thinking, well, am I standing on a slant? You know, mm-hmm. just <laughs> well, it was cool looking at my it. hands, staring at my hands to make sure like I wasn't shaking mm-hmm. or holding one higher or a different angle or Well, and you could even see you. like my hands would be shaking a little bit, but even with your hands shaking... Especially it yours, re- it yes. moved really quickly. I mean, and it went from being straight forward to to the side, and it would only be one that would move. Yeah, yeah. So it and then like, I'd ask, I I asked it to move back, and it immediately and it responded. Back. Yeah, so it's like it wasn't like something blew it or pulled mm-mm, it that way because mm-mm. all of a sudden it went the other direction. And I wasn't like, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like people go, oh well, the mind can control things and stuff. I was not. I was like trying to blank out my mind. I'm like, I asked this question, and I'm just gonna be like la di da, and then it would just do it. <laughs> It was amazing. It was a really cool house. And I thought that we caught an EVP. They had a couple of furnishings there that were original to the family. Because the really cool thing about this house is it was in the family all the way up until they handed it over to the Historical Society. Yeah, I mean, goodness gracious. Which you are not going to find in many Uh -uh. places where you've got this hundred something year old Victorian home that hasn't passed through a bunch of hands. Right. So that was really cool about it. So some of the furnishing there was original to the family. They had dresses that were original to the family. And here in this room with one of the dresses that was 100 years old, Mm -hmm. I think I caught an EVP. It's over 100 plus years old. Wow. When donations come in and we can afford it. Lorena, it's over 100 did I catch something? I don't know. It sounds almost like it's repeating that the dress was 100 years old. Well, and I was in that room and I know who was in the room. There's no way that any of us said that. No, nobody in there. It, there was four of us. It was you, me, some woman that I didn't know, and one of the docents. Right. 
And everybody else had already gone downstairs, and I think they'd headed outside, because by the time we got downstairs, there yeah. was nobody in the house. We were always the stragglers. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, it was so noisy, because that's yes. why I was like, I'm not sure I'll trust any EVP I get, because people were talking and bustling about, and right. even though I think there was only 15, 15 of us, maybe, maybe 20. Yeah, I don't think there was 20. Yeah, it, it was not a huge group, but it just, you know, whenever you're with a huge group that you can't be like, hey, everybody, can we be quiet? So I could right, of course. Anything. Yeah. But at that moment, we were basically the only people in the house. And so right. I kind of felt like maybe I caught something there. Yeah, there was that one gal that brought one of those touch lights, you know, the, oh, yeah, that yeah, you yeah, push yeah. on and yeah, off. The push on ones. And she just randomly, like she had her own stuff and she would just like in the nursery area, mm-hmm. she had that sitting there and would just randomly ask questions. And even that thing was responding. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know. I mean, it, it that's different than a flashlight. And I just, I could see her hands and everything. Whenever we had the response, the responses directly seemed to come from the owner of the house. Like she was being the hostess and uh-huh. guiding us through the tour. I mean, every time, you know, it wasn't just when we were in the group asking questions with the ghost hunter guides or the docents. It was separate from that. And she was completely lighting up the light and direct reactions to what we were Saying And it was very conversational as well. You know, what's interesting about that, too, is those push on lights. Yeah. When you push on them, they kind of make a clicking noise. You know, Right. And it didn't do it that. It did not do that. Mm-mm. So I'm like, how is that turning off? No. And the gal that brought it, I mean, her hands were right there. Yeah. We were she just was, directly. She was putting it on the floor and stuff. Yeah. Like when she was over by that tree. And she put it in the crib. Yeah. I mean, it was a really incredible experience. I mean, what happened in, for our executive producers, they got to listen to the bonus cast because I did that as a bonus cast. Right. It literally, other than what my number one is going to be. This little Victorian house I'd never heard of before. I just had this thing pop up on my Facebook page that said, hey, (laughs) we're going to be doing our first ever ghost hunt slash tour of this house publicly. And I was like, I'm going to sign up for it because I'm like, it's right up the street at Wildwood, which was about an hour away from here. Right. I'm like, what? I want to go back. I want to go back. And I didn't think we were going to get anything. I know. I know. We haven't even had any investigations here hardly at all. There's nothing about it on the internet. Which makes everything that happens so much more incredible to me. We were expecting absolutely nothing. Yeah. I walked out of there and I told Kelly, I said, that is one of the most haunted locations I've ever been in. Yeah. I mean, the interactions were incredible. Yeah. I mean, it was just one thing after another. It wasn't anything even necessarily related to what the ghost investigators were were doing. It was just Mm-mm. random things that we were individually experiencing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, it was so cool. And then number one, of course, is Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Oh, I want to go there. I definitely have to get you there. It was. I want to go there so bad. You, when you look at this building on the outside, it is so imposing. You definitely. Can't, you can't imagine what it was like for the people who had to stay there. No. Uh, hundreds and hundreds thousands of people died here because they all had tuberculosis some of them had i didn't realize you could get tuberculosis and things other than your lungs like your brain right right you know and then they also had people there that had some other things going on and stuff too it's just a place of utter sorrow and so when you walk into this place you can really feel that but i also walked out of there and i was exhilarated 
because when you have interactions like we had in a big group setting, sure, you can't doubt <laughs> yeah. that something happened. Absolutely. And the coolest thing for me that happened there that I told on the episode where I was like returned to Waverly Hills yeah. is the story about the dog. <laughs> and this is a guy who was basically homeless. He was a vet right. and he had a dog with him and he was living in Waverly Sanatorium and he was basically... Kind of a caretaker, yeah, I guess, of he sorts. Was. He was the caretaker. <laughs> so he would make sure that Kept people the, didn't come in there and vandalize yeah. and stuff. And this one night, there was a group of kids in there that were screwing around yeah. and probably hopped up on drugs because they end up taking him and the dog Ugh. and throwing him down this elevator shaft. Right. And the girl who was our tour guide is telling us this story. And as she's telling the story, you hear what sounds like a dog's whine. And it's not an EVP. It is audible. Yeah. It is the Ugh. only time I've so ever incredible. heard audible spiritual noise. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, my God, I think I just heard a dog whine. And, of course, I'm a skeptic. So yeah. I'm thinking, wow, talk about suggestion. She's talking yeah. about a dog. <laughs> and my brain thinks it hears a dog, you know, <laughs> until she goes, did you guys hear that? And everybody else in the group goes, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, was it a dog whining? Yep. That's what we all heard. Yeah. And then she's continuing her story. And I hear what sounds like a dog whine again. And then a door slam at the end of the hallway. And I'm at the back end of the group. So it's closest to me. Right. I was like, was that the hinges of the door whining? Or and all of a sudden she goes, did you guys hear that again? <laughs> so everybody, of course, hears the dog whining again. And she goes, and that door down there was closed so something oh opened gosh. and slammed it shut again yeah so it was like whoa ah, i can't wait to go there she continues to talk <laughs> again and for a third time clear as day a dog whining wow and so not only not only was this amazing to me because it was something that i could hear audibly it was something that i shared with the group so i knew i was right. hearing things but animals are spirits too yeah so i was so excited because you know you always are like do, Who, do is dogs everybody have spirits are yeah they in is everybody heaven? gonna meet me at the rainbow bridge <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i was like you know what animals have a spirit too because yeah. i've heard it now yeah so you remember kelly because i talked to you when i came oh, out of i know building and i was just like i was like you better oh, call me as soon my as it's God. over <laughs> i just had the most amazing experience of my life yeah so a lot of people go in there and they're scared i know dina from twisted philly was yeah. terrified on she the fourth really floor scared. She had definitely a paranormal experience on the fifth right. floor. Right, and with her shawl, right? Yeah, something she definitely like pulled something it pulling off of it. her. Yeah. And she wasn't trying to interact with anything. She was no, just No, she was the saying the Lord's Prayer. She <laughs> did not want anybody touching her. And what yeah. was interesting about that, too, is she could not complete the prayer. She couldn't right. remember it. I remember. And I'm sure most of our listeners, even if you're not a Christian. You, you know the Our Father. <laughs> no, the Lord's Prayer. Right. And if you're scared or whatever, it's going to come to you. And you probably yeah. will know it better than you ever knew it. And <laughs> she could not. There were lines. She was just like, I can't finish it. What, what do I say next? It was like something was preventing her from saying it. I would just be praying directly to Jesus the whole time. <laughs> I don't need to say like a... a, a prayer that <laughs> repeated all the time and on that fourth floor that I she didn't want to be... open her eyes on that's where people see shadow figures right and pretty much everybody i talked to they shot saw shadow figures right if you ask me yes i saw some shadows that were moving mm -hmm. but again i don't it know could be a play the just, eyes yes. the lighting yeah. going down the hallway yeah yeah i mean that is hard to 
you so know, as a skeptic, necessarily say, but that is also the floor that something not so nice is supposed to be on. So that's right. probably why I believe that Dina is an empath. So I think she's oh, picking absolutely. up on whatever negative energy is on there. Yep. This is some kind of a creature or something that some young punks were in there again one night. Negativity. Wanted to do some vandalizing. They had an axe with them trying to destroy stuff Ugh. and it locked the door on them to the stairway so they could not get out of the fourth floor <laughs> and you could see on that door the axe marks as they tried to pound their way out of there because whatever was in there with them scared the crap out of them well maybe it taught them a lesson yeah that's all i've got to say i bet they don't go into <laughs> abandoned places again <laughs> don't be screwing around like that <laughs> and they used a spirit box up on the fifth floor yes yeah of course i, I heard the stuff that was on there and it quite distinctly told us all to get out mm -hmm. so i said well i don't need to be in this room anymore <laughs> Plus, they have gargoyles on top of this place. Yeah, but gargoyles are good. No, but uh, this is what I'm telling <laughs> oh. you. They have gargoyles <laughs> okay. in this place. So I wanted to go out on the balcony area so I could get some really cool pictures because it was also a full moon. Oh. And so I have some amazing pictures that I got with the gargoyles and the full moon right there. That's right. Anyway, it was a really, really cool experience there and uh, definitely want to go back again. So I can sit back at the end of this episode and declare... It's a haunted gay life. <laughs> or is it? That, that is, is for you, you to, to decide. decide. Well, I hope you enjoyed that list. And I hope if you haven't checked out at least a few of those locations that you get a chance to do so in the future. And speaking of haunted locations, I want to remind you all, make your plans for October. We're going to be having a Home of the Mothman live show. It will be at Caitlin's Lighthouse Pub and Grill in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And the Haunted Low Hotel is there. And I plan on spending a couple of nights there. So I would love to have you guys join me at the Low Hotel for staying. And we're going to do a little investigating there. I'm going to be doing the show with the guys from the Brohio podcast and Jerry and Tracy Polly from Hillbilly Horror Stories. So it's going to be a great time. If you want to get all of the details on that, including getting your tickets, which are only $15 each, you just head over to the historyghostbump.com website and click on the events tab, scroll down a little bit, and you'll see all the information there. I'm planning on talking about Appalachian lore and magic, and there's a lot of good stuff in regards to that. So I hope you can join me in October. It is October 5th from 7 to 10 p.m. And the historygoesbump.com website is where you can find out everything you want to know about the podcast, including where you can find me on social media. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. If you'll all recall, on the last episode, I talked about drive-in theaters, and I wanted to know if you guys had any drive-ins near you, and I did hear from some of you. Brian said during the recent episode of HGB, you spoke about the opening of the very first drive-in theater in New Jersey. That piqued my interest. There's an abandoned drive-in not far from me, and I was drawn to it after hearing your piece. It's a spooky place even during the daylight hours. The name is the Hilltop Drive-In on Route 6 in Joliet, Illinois. With a little research, I learned it has been sitting dormant since 2001. It was a little eerie walking around the grounds thinking of all the human experience that took place there over five decades of use. First kisses, horror movies, sneaking in, drinking beer, and everything under the summer moon. I love the way he put that. It's an era gone by, the likes of which we will never see again. I know graveyards are particularly susceptible to ghosts, but have always been drawn to abandoned locations whose time has come and gone, old factories, schools, shopping malls, etc. 
And then he sent some photos, which I put up on Instagram so that you can see what the abandoned hilltop drive-in looks like. Thanks so much for sharing those, Brian. And then Sharon commented on the website. She said, Dear Diane, I've been listening to your wonderful podcast for years. I love history and have a very avid interest in the paranormal. After all, as a child of five or six, I'd rather play in one of the oldest cemeteries in St. Paul, Minnesota, only a block from my grandmother's house, than with other kids in the neighborhood. I know the feeling. Of course, Grandma never questioned where the flowers came from, LOL. Even at that young age, I found history and genealogy fascinating, a fascination that has lasted my entire 71 years. Your latest podcast spoke of drive-in theaters. Well, three years ago, I moved from Huntington Beach, California, to a wonderful little town in the high desert called 29 Palms. There's about 20,000 people spread out over 65 square miles. Oh, and the world's largest Marine Corps training base of about 15,000 Marines, literally less than two miles from my front door. I bet she feels safe. We are also right at the north entrance to the 8,000 square mile Joshua Tree National Park. Check out the website. It's very interesting. A little bit of synchronicity. When I got this email, I was finishing up editing on one of the more recent bonus casts that featured the Joshua Tree Inn and Graham Parsons. So I went, how weird that I get this email from somebody talking about the Joshua Tree National Park just as I'm editing that episode. Happens around here all the time. About 300 feet from my back door is the Smith's Ranch Drive-In Theater, one of the last in Southern California. It's a very historic venue, having been established 70 years ago or so. It's open four days a week, shows two movies a night, and they are very current. This week, we have John Wick 3, which we actually just saw this weekend, and Longshot, all for five bucks. What a deal. When Avengers Endgame was showing, we had it the weekend it opened and lines that went forever. So all I have to do is walk over, pay my $5, and sit in the outside patio with waterfall feature and enjoy the movies on a beautiful desert night. What more can you ask for? I thought that sounded spectacular. Then she suggested a location called the Griggs Mansion to me, and she's going to talk a little bit about it here. She says, now back to my story. Yes, I experienced several haunted things during that summer. I've always been sensitive to the paranormal. Remember playing in cemeteries. So it didn't allow it to affect me too much. Also, at this time, I had no clue about the reputation of the home. Going forward to the early 80s, I found a book called The Haunted Heartland, which had the Griggs Mansion in it. Imagine my shock when I found out about its reputation. It also explained some of the strange things I encountered while I was in there that summer. Also, have you ever done Sleepy Hollow, which I have? Again, a personal reason. I recently found out that the man who built the Reformed Church in Sleepy Hollow, Frederick Philipsy, is my 13th great-grandfather, and he has his two wives and some other family members buried in the crypt of that church. That's fabulous. I also have a great-grandfather who drove freight and passengers from Sundance, Wyoming to Deadwood, South Dakota. And yes, I've been there to visit Mount Moriah Cemetery on one of my road trips, which I've also covered. Having been in the military and of an adventurous nature, I've been in a lot of places, both here in the U.S. and all over Europe, always checking out burial sites, many of the places you have done episodes on. Lastly, I mentioned being sensitive to paranormal phenomena. It's really a little more than that. I've had the experience of seeing full-bodied apparitions a few times. Yeah, I'd say that's more than sensitive. (laughs) Including my maternal grandmother in 1958 and my son Robert in 1985. Being an animal lover, I have even had phantom pets pay me a visit now and then. I've sensed presences in many of the buildings I've visited and have heard voices. I've visited battlefields, historic buildings, churches, and burial sites all across the U.S. and in several countries and cities in Europe. These experiences are so common for me that I just accept them as being normal, and I love it. It may sound strange, but it reinforces my belief in life after death, and I feel so fortunate to have had this ability. Well, thank you for sharing all of that, Sharon. I greatly appreciate it. And of course, I've added the Griggs Mansion to my list of locations. I want to thank Jimmy Miracle for your Apple Podcast review. 
apparently he's with Afterlife Pathways. And then Holly Road, I just wanted to say how excited I am to have discovered your podcast. I just heard an old interview that you did on the confessionals. I grew up in New Orleans, and when in eighth grade, I had to write a local history paper. I thought then, and still strongly do now, that the best way to learn about a place's history is through their ghost stories. My amazingly supportive parents drove me into the city and took me to every haunted location I wanted to include in my paper. How amazing are they? That started my love of history and hauntings. I do not in any way like haunted houses, but I love a ghost tour. Ghost stories push beyond dates and well-known facts into the personality and passions of a place. It puts you in history in a place like all great stories do. It makes it all real. Whenever I visit a city, I try my best to go on a ghost tour for that reason. I love hearing you say the same. She also said, I practically squealed when I heard you mention St. Augustine. It's the one and only place I've actually seen a ghost. And now I need to know more, Holly. Where did you see a ghost in St. Augustine? And as most people know, it is one of my favorite cities in the world. So I was excited to hear about that. All right. Well, I think that does it for me. Here's to another 300 episodes. I'm so excited to jump into some more content for you guys. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. And because it took so much time to put this episode together, we're going to skip Mort's eulogies this time. He was a little busy helping me with some other stuff, so he didn't get a chance to get to that. We'll get the eulogies going again next episode. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the graveyard, Monica Blanchett. You will be getting a marble headstone. Thanks so much for your support. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.